Hello, everybody. Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a journalist and writer and podcaster, blah, blah, blah. Check out Blocked and Reported, um, podcast I co-host with Katie Herzog. I almost said Hertzberg. Pretty sure that's not her name. This week in particular, we tell this crazy story she looked into of the attempted me-tooing of a professor at the University of Rochester. Uh, you should just check it out. That's all I can say. Check that out. Read her story and reason about it. Uh, I also, if you're interested in sort of social science scandal stuff, I have a sort of weird piece that'll be going up within like an hour of getting off this about this ongoing dispute over a political scientist at um, Harvard. And the short version is a guy at the Daily Caller News Foundation took a crack at like breaking this story open. And I think he really botched it. And I just sort of wrote about that and, and some of the, the standards that should prevail when you're a journalist looking into a fraud ag- accusation. So that might be of interest to people. That's at, that'll be at jessiesingle.substack.com. Um, part of the reason I can't do a fuller treatment of that is I'm going to Cuba tomorrow for nine days. So if folks have um, recommendations for... Varadero, Havana, and Pinales. Those are the three places I'm going with um, a couple friends. Uh, all ears to hear more about how to enjoy that country. It should be a very interesting experience. Um, also, I'm in the market. <laughs> I just tweeted about this. I'm giving you guys a little, lot of non-substantive stuff. This is mostly just going to be your call, so feel free to jump in the queue if you have any questions or comments. Um, I'm also in the market. If, you, if there's just like great under-the-radar documentaries on YouTube that I should have watched by now that I could download to my laptop before I go over there. I think I'll have pretty limited internet access, so I could use, uh, you know, late-night wind-down material. Jacob, what is up? Other people get in the queue. Hey, Jesse. Good afternoon. How's it going? I'm good. Are you safely back in the People's Republic of Brooklyn now? Uh, From where? Uh, well, you seem to have been bouncing around the country. Oh, yeah. I was Florida, in um, California, Texas. Yeah, most recent uh, was California, but I'm back as of a few weeks ago, yeah. Oh, Although about you. to head back head back out. A lot of travel, which has been good. Definitely sounds like you are doing your best to spread COVID. Exactly. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to bring up something that's kind of been happening on Twitter this afternoon because, you know, what is a day in life without bullshit on Twitter? Exactly. The, there was a Fox News cameraman who got killed in Ukraine. I think it was sometime over the weekend, or at least it was only announced in the last day or so. And Susan Baker, formerly of Politico and the New York Times, now at CNN and either New Yorker, the New Yorker, basically took the opportunity to use his death to dunk on Tucker Carlson for being an evil Russian propagandist and how sad it is that this guy had to, go, had to die while sharing a network with Tucker. And there's just been a lot of criticism of her for that statement. And she wasn't really the only one to make that. And there were plenty of folks out there defending her because Fox is so terrible and Tucker is this evil propagandist. And I'm sort of just wondering if our discourse has kind of gotten to the point where some guy's body hasn't even been shipped back to his family yet when his death is like already becoming a punchline. And what that says about elite people in media like Susan, who, you know, is a multimillionaire, best-selling author, and as Mark Labovich would say, a citizen of the green room. Yeah, I um, I mean, I, I didn't see the tweets in question. That doesn't 
so I don't want to get too detailed, um, but that doesn't surprise me. There's definitely this thing where like whenever a new thing happens, no matter how noticeable or horrible or seemingly disconnected from Twitter bullshit, people will try to connect it to Twitter bullshit. Um, and I just think it's a terrible impulse and that especially if someone just – I don't really believe that if someone dies, you can't like criticize them or you can't make a point that more complicated than it's sad they died. But in this case, it sounds like a journalist was killed and it's just – I don't know. It speaks to like real Twitter brain mouth and it's just I think pretty disrespectful. So, But I've noticed more and more people who spend a lot of time on Twitter who seem to – loses their grip on reality in the sense of thinking that their Twitter bullshit matters a lot more than it does. I've certainly been guilty of this, although I try not to be. So it just sounds like it's a pretty disgraceful thing. I'll, I'll uh, after yeah. I get off, I'll, I'll check out the tweets, which is, this is the whole problem. Now I'm going to go read the <laughs> tweets and they'll make me mad. And yeah. Yeah. I actually also don't believe that just because somebody's died doesn't mean you can't actually discuss, you know, bad things that they have done or have been involved in. But like, this wasn't even about the. Yeah. It sounds like it, it was just like a total non sequitur. Like, right. It was well, it's also like the, the guy, if the guy worked for Fox News, he as an adult made a choice to work for Fox News. Right. He's, like, oh, you. Uh... Sorry, yeah, this sounds... Now, I had, like, personally never actually heard of him before his death was announced, so, like, maybe he has, you know, said or done lots of bad stuff and pushed so-called Russian propaganda. I generally just don't know. No, a lot of just, like, guy. normal stringers and camera people and reporters work for Fox News in addition to the sort of prime time. Right. I think just, I think all I'm saying is just because he worked for Fox News is no reason to think that that's um, the case. Yeah, and I, I'm just like seeing more and more of like that kind of stuff, and this is just like today's latest example, but I sometimes wonder if like these people actually realize that folks outside, you know, the Georgetown Cafe Milano Kathy Graham's drawing room dinner set are actually reading their stuff too. Yeah, I think, um, <laughs> People lose sight of because you can often get a wave of adulation on Twitter. People don't realize how bad the stuff they tweet looks to people outside their circle or they rationalize it by saying like anyone who disagrees with them is has their own politics. But anyway, yeah, thank you then, for catching oh, me up on the latest Twitter bullshit. Yeah. And then also just quickly, a few weeks ago, you brought up your desire to sort of diversify your reporting beyond culture war stuff. And I was curious to know how that project was going and if you had any specific topics that you've decided to pursue as. Yeah, I, I think it's going well so far. I have um, a couple things in the worst works that'll go up in April. One is just like a critique of a pretty popular book that made certain claims about like psychology that I think it really shows you how you can trick people or even trick yourself by just like running endless statistical comparisons and only reporting the ones that come back positive rather than null. Um, I've got some sort of more culture writing type stuff in the works. So far, I think it's been good. I keep getting sucked back into the culture war stuff, but um, I think I'm, I'm doing better at finding a balance. So enjoy your, enjoy your trip. Thank you, Jacob. Shauna, what is up? Um, I'm just here for the documentary, so let's talk about that. Go for it. You didn't give us any genre guidelines here. Any genre of documentary? Yeah, what, what genre do you like? For oh, I mean, I mean, I'm really open to anything. I, 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 I can watch any 
anything that's interesting, and I'm, I'm asking the question in an intentionally general way. Okay. So anything by Errol Morris. Right. Yes, I'm, I, I don't think I've seen anything by Errol Morris, which is embarrassing. Oh, my God. Yeah. We, we got a long list to work through here. Okay. So Vernon, Florida would be at the top of your list. Okay. That's one of his first ones. Thin Blue Line. Um, he's had some newer ones, but I think he's most well-known for those two. And he kind of set the stage for modern-day uh, true crime documentaries. Okay, and then there's... I'm having some trouble uh, with your mic, Sean. Is there a way to... Um... Okay, hold on. Is that any better? Yep, that's better. Okay, sorry. So, yeah, anything by Errol Morris would be good. Um, and then, so he did Vernon, Florida, Thin Blue Line. And uh, another good one is Documentary Now, which is uh, done by Bill Hader and Fred Armisen. Yeah, it's like a spoof of documentaries, right? Yes, yeah. And then um, any, you said YouTube, but there's some great ones through HBO, um, like the the Jinx, which is really well Yeah, known. Jinx was great. Um, I've seen it. Um, but yeah, I would just look up anything by Errol Morris because he is sort of irreverent and, and really interesting and um, kind of setting up that, that genre. I've heard very good things. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, have fun. Thank you, Shana. Thanks. Gabby, what's up? Hey, Jesse, have fun in Cuba. I, I need your help. Uh, meanwhile, I can't really hear you. Can you uh, boost your mic a little bit somehow? Can, can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Listen, I got to ask some advice before you go to Cuba. I'm sorry if you've been asked this before, but like you and Katie are basically like kind of center left, left, like fringe Brooklyn, Seattle, like weirdos have gotten sucked into the centrist reaction to woke, but you're pretty liberal, cool, like people, right? And so you have friends, but people have reacted negatively to your work. I am actually not as bad as some people say. What I'm trying to ask you is I'm, I'm having trouble maintaining friendships more to my left. I, I, I grew up on the left actually. And can you tell me how you do it? Do you manage to do it? Have you been asked this before? Because there's just so much horrible negativity out there these days. I'm thinking of just not even being involved with political discussions anymore. Is this mostly – is, is are, are the, the conflicts you get into mostly online or offline? It's mostly with you, really, on your show. But oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, – kidding aside, it's more offline. Yeah. Like you sound like you actually have some idea of what I'm trying to say. Like IRL people, I'm thinking like don't even – I shouldn't even talk about politics because all it really is is referencing stuff online. Like what are we even talking about sometimes? It's just our reactions to, to shit we see on the internet. And yet it can break up human relationships. Have you come across this? I mean, I've had very little. I, Katie's like actually lost friends to this stuff. I, I haven't. I have one friend who sort of, yes, but he had a lot of other pre-existing, frankly, mental health problems. One other friend like said she was 
like worried. This was something I hadn't seen in years. She said she was like worried about some of my work. She sent me a DM and I was like, I, I said, let's talk on the phone about it. Cause I valued her as a friend. She was someone I hung out yeah. with a fair amount 10 years ago, but I, she never wanted to have that. We never scheduled that phone call. So no, I mean, my short version, this is you easy for me to say in real life. Yeah. You what? You don't get this in real life. Cause you take a lot of shit online, but you know what you're talking about. You hold your own. And, I also like I just I have normie friends so I can afford to say that I'm not going to tolerate right. anyone who questions You're their friendships with nice me over disagreement. In, in reality, I've been told this by people who know you. I am Thank not you. that nice. I'm just average. I'm not mean, but I'm but like you're supposedly a really nice person. It comes across in your work as well. I guess I'm just repeating myself, but um, I'm thinking of just bowing out of political discussions anymore because it's just too too harsh, and I mean IRL. I will, I, I will say, like, a couple times in our online interactions, like, there was one time, I think you referred to me as a cunt in a uh, Reddit I, I, post. I, I meant that in a positive way, though. Like, yeah, but I think to, it might not come across in a positive way if you call someone a cunt. So I'm what, do you I do things like that? In, a cunt. I, I called Moynihan a, a cunt. But if you're calling this many people you agree with cunts, isn't that? It's ball busting among guys. It's dudes. It's how we make friends. Um. I don't think it comes – it didn't – if you just call someone a cunt on Twitter uh, – first of all, someone just dm me and said they couldn't hear me. If you can hear me, give a thumbs up emoji. I feel like we're getting okay, people can hear me. down to the real – Well, I'm just saying if you if you act in that manner in real life, it wouldn't surprise me <laughs> if people re- acted negatively toward you. Okay, so this is the point, really. We've had – this is a misunderstanding. I'm a – it's guy talk. It's it's. Uh, I feel you formed a negative opinion of me, but some of your well, no, no. I'm just I'm just saying like it's 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 one thing to be like I, actually on the show. They say that they like my calls, but you who said they like your calls? Uh, Sid Arthur did, and um, the guy, the the other one, what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm gonna out you. You, I think you're sorry and might have, but maybe it wasn't him. A couple of people have DM me personally to say they like my calls in your show. I know, but but the point is, there's nothing been nothing wrong with your calls on the show. But like, one time there have been times where you act in a very confrontational manner online, and you re- you'll you've tagged me into discussions where you're fighting with someone else trying to draw me in, or you'll tweet at me repeatedly, just sort of trying to goad me. And for some people, they have offline personas completely different from their online personas. That might be the case for you. But I'm just saying, if you like me in real life, we'd have zero problems. Actually, okay. Everyone says that. About if me. you, like, if, I think if I do fuck up online a bit more than I realize. Yeah, that might be the case. I'm just saying if, if, if uh, but the advice I would give someone would be different for maintaining offline friendships with people who they disagree with politically. It does depend a lot on their t- disposition. And if they, you know, um, it, I'm saying if your offline comportment was similar to how you sometimes act online, I would say that that would be the place to start is just be nicer to people. But if you're already nice to people offline, it could just be the friends in question are a little bit intolerant or not in a place where they can handle the stress of political disagreement. And because so many people's brains are melting, but right now there are unfortunately a lot of people like that. That's good advice. They, they, they are like far leftist kind of too, which I don't mind because I grew up with people like this, but 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 they can be the most intolerant. But okay, so I got to let you go because I know others want to talk. But like the line between, I guess what I would call ball busting, like guys, sociologists, you know this. You're a social scientist. 
say guys make friends by by kind of I don't know for lack of a better word word like insulting each other and kind of back and forth like you feel I'm missing something on the subtlety of that I think like like I seem to not make it clear I'm just trying to you know shoot the shit but but it doesn't always work. Yeah, that's fair. I, I wasn't personally offended that you called me a cunt, but you can see why if it's someone you don't actually know, calling someone a cunt is different from ball busting with like a established friend, right? Do you mind when I call you Jesse V Signal on 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 tweets? Like like V is for virtue. It's like I'm kind of kidding you. Like you're virtue signaling. Uh, no, I don't. It does none of this stuff particularly bothers me. I'm just trying to be frank with you about how I appreciate it. I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Very much appreciate it. Okay, bye. Thanks, Gabby. KW, what is up? <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hey, Hello? can you hear me? Yep, much better. Thank you. Uh, well, that sure took a while. I've taken my sweet time waiting after that last guy. Anyway, I've just been, I've been thinking a lot lately just, I guess like everybody about Twitter, like in the last, it's done a real number on my mental health as it has with so many others. Sometimes I wonder, do you think the world would be better without it? Just, just without Twitter. The other social media sites can stay, but Twitter can go. You think journalism would be in a better place? I, I think it would. Yeah. I think it definitely would, but I, I want to make sure I'm addressing strongest argument in the other direction and you'll see people claim that twitter is a way for sort of more powerless people to organize or or underrepresented voices to organize and i've heard that too i think it's sometimes true but i i think those arguments don't really address the downside which is just because like a group of voices are traditionally underrepresented doesn't mean they're right or that they act in a proportional or fair way and i i just see way more bad faith outrage campaigns on Twitter than like careful, thoughtful reasoning. And I think the real thing that lets people hold others accountable is um, you can email any journalist you want or any intellectual you want and express why you think they are wrong about stuff. And I think that's the way to do it because there isn't an audience. Obviously the incentives, if you're criticizing someone in front of basically the whole world, we're humans. It's just going to be different. So. Just perform for your followers. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think journalism, if you could turn Twitter off tomorrow, I think it would absolutely benefit journalism in every way, except, you know, Twitter does help people get their stories out. So, yeah. It does. It's just, you know, I just think that I remember Freddie DeVore saying something recently about, I think it was on a podcast with Ian Strauss, and he was saying that he thinks Twitter is one of the worst things that's ever happened to American democracy. And you know, when I look around and I see that the, you know, there's the woke identitarian stuff on the left that we all hate, everyone in this room hates, and then there's the xenophobic, conspiracy-mongering Trumpism going on on the right, I feel like those things rose almost concurrently, and Twitter's a big part of that, man. I, I yeah. swear, if we're those ideologies just romp around and have fun which well, be, uh, yeah, here's where I'm, I'm more torn just because I like there will always have there was always right wing populism. There were always like sort of cruder forms of left wing identity politics. I think Twitter probably helps them spread. I just worry sometimes that people blame it all 
on Twitter or whatever happened most recently. Like some people act as though before Donald Trump, there weren't right wing charlatan demagogues or there weren't people trying to rile whites up against immigrants. So, yeah, I, I struggle with finding like the right the right language to talk about Twitter's role, if that makes it does make sense. For what it's worth, I did start reading uh, that book you mentioned, The Twilight of Common yeah. Dreams. I'm only about 20 pages into it, but already I'm like, holy shit, this is very, the vibe is very similar. Yeah, this is a Todd Gitlin book. He just, you know, a big, big time leftist intellectual who just died. Sorry, I'm just explaining for everyone else. And, and the first, tell me if this is right, but I believe the first part is about uh, fights over curricula and textbooks in like, in California and Oakland, right? Exactly. Yeah. It could, it's literally the exact same stuff as today. Just with different names. Exactly. And, you know, and it's just the thing that drives me nuts about, you know, there's, there are certain people that I never would have even heard of if not for Twitter. Uh, Michael Hobbs, for example, I only found out about him maybe a few years ago. Yeah. I fucking hate that guy. He's just the most, I mean, it's, I've seen some of his, just the way he interacts on there just fills me with rage. Just so haughty, sneering, condescending. Yeah. It, it's just utterly revolting. And it would be nice if I just didn't, if I could just uh, pop the blue pill and forget who people like that are. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a lot of people. I, well, I, I made a joke about this on Twitter last night. There's like a million, Hobbs is actually like a very successful podcaster, so he's not a rando, but there are all these times I sign on to Twitter and I'm exposed to some random person's I've never heard of's ridiculous opinion, and it makes me mad. And and it would objectively be better for me and for my mental health if I just didn't know about that. I mean, like if a machine could right now inject into your brain all the bad opinions everyone in the world has, you would go crazy. You'd have to be institutionalized forever. And Twitter does that every day, just in like a drip, drip, drip way, which I, I agree with you. The world would be better in many ways without it. The one final note is that one thing I've noticed uh, about a lot of the most deranged Twitter people, there's a, there's a kind of hypocrisy I've noticed. Uh, on the one hand, they'll say things like mental health is important. Going to therapy is important. Uh, not being a toxic alpha male asshole is important. I, I agree with all of that. I agree with, you know, millennial and Zoomer culture has placed much greater importance on mental health, which I think is great. I'm totally with. But at the same time, you hold that view and you also go online and scream at everybody for wrong things and eat your own children. Yeah, there's... um. There's something to the the South Park story arc where with PC Principal, who's this like very buff. It's basically uh, like well, you, know, brilliant, you what? That character is brilliant. I love. Yeah, that for folks who haven't seen it, basically all the most social justicey people are these very buff, big, white, aggressive frat boys, and there is this dynamic where I'll see, um, not always men, but often men who act in the exact same way where you would point to that person and be like, that person is just a cruel bully, but they're doing it for social justice. So the behavior is socially sanctioned. But anyway, thank you for the call, KW. I, I agree with you about all this. Ben, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Good, how are you? Hey, good, thank you. Um, yeah, actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about the simulation theory today. Uh, I didn't get a chance to, to jump on when you were posting that that call um but yeah i actually been 
I've been kind of, um, I've never found a conversation about that topic that really actually addresses what I think is the most profound implication of simulation theory, which, which I guess I can just lay out how, how I think about this. Um, but it doesn't really have anything to do with, with artificial intelligence or the metaverse or advanced graphics in gaming or anything like that. I think that the way that I think about this, this topic is, is that let's just say in a hypothetical, there's a universe that in that universe, there is some kind of somewhere in that universe, there's some kind of intelligence that develops the ability to observe within that universe. And realizes that at, at a certain point in time, there was a time, what we refer to as the Big Bang, but in this hypothetical, it's whatever, the starting point, so to speak, of that universe seems to be. And that intelligence may develop simulations to try to recreate that initial, for us, it would be the Big Bang, but whatever the starting conditions are, trying to trying to discover the fundamental rules the the most basic possible formula that that led to this big bang and then essentially getting as close as they can using whatever computational power they have available to them whether that's the a quantum computer or a you know a computing system the size of a planet or you know whatever it is that gets as close as possible to recreating that initial event. And in doing so, they essentially then would create a new universe. And within that universe, it would have its own Big Bang. And so you're saying they're literally, this comes in the course of literally trying to better understand their Big Bang. They simulate it and in the process create another universe. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. And as close as they get to simulating their own Big Bang, the, the more likely it is that they are creating a universe that is more like theirs yeah. and that obviously will be less, it will be less, um, the, you know, to, to simulate one-to-one the universe that you have that you're in, you would need the power of the entire universe to do that. So it wouldn't be the same degree of, the, the scale wouldn't be the same, but to an entity in the child universe you would never know that the parent universe was much more complex and powerful. Wouldn't, wouldn't the main, I, I find that really interesting, but wouldn't one um, immediate question be if they're just trying to understand the big bang in the first moments of the universe, why would they let it run for billions of years, gobbling up computers? Well, the, the, the way that I think about it is that the billions of years could be within the simulation, but it might just be like an yeah. hour for, for a for an entity that's that's much higher level and so i i think that we could run a simulation and go okay we're just going to let this thing explode and see what happens and then let it kind of like drift off into nothingness into the black hole phase or the dark phase of the universe without that being very costly to them overall exactly it may be maybe it's half an hour an hour and maybe there's a thousand simulations running in a room and and all of them are producing universes you know and 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 some of those universes may be viable for intelligence to develop um and then within any of those universes you may have an entity that or a group 
that tries to understand the nature of that universe that they're in and then ends up creating another one or another thousand within their universe. I like that. It's a little bit like that Rick and Morty episode, but maybe a little bit more the the one where his, you know, UFO battery is running on on an entire university created to <laughs> yeah, power yeah. UFO. But uh but more like that the attempt to understand the basis of the universe could result in us creating new ones. Um and yeah, it's an interesting thought. And I think that it's much more likely it's also much it's much harder to falsify, of course. There's no way to know. I mean that's true of like any but anything involving actually, uh, the simulation hypothesis, almost. Not really. No, and it, it's not really something that changes anything. It, there's no implications that would really change anything about the way we live. Yeah. Or, or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, that, those are my thoughts. But Appreciate I, that, Ben. That's very provocative. Hear more about that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and also, uh, while I have you here, the documentary recommendation, um, I would definitely recommend The Imposter and uh, Tickled. Imposter and Tickled. Which are two... Yeah, two fairly disturbing but fascinating and, and top-of-the-list documentaries for me. I'm not sure where you'd find them. But... I can look them up. And, of course, Winter on Fire, which I'm, uh, I assume you've seen. I've not seen. I'll check that out, too. Oh, that's about the Ukrainian crisis. Oh, so okay. That's that's a good one. Thank you, Ben. Um, Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. All right, take it easy. But Siddhartha, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Um, you hear me? Yep. So I, I heard, uh, I think, uh, over the weekend, you said you're going to Cuba. Yep. I, I had some thoughts on that. Um, I, I actually went to Cuba in the late 90s. Um, I spent a week there. Had a really good time, but uh, had some sort of interesting observations. Um, and I, you know, it, it's hard to know what's going on in Cuba. Um, so, so isolated. So it'd be interesting to get your take when you get back, what you think. Uh, so one thing is that, like, when I arrived... Um, you know, my, my initial impression is that like, well, this is, seems like a pretty good place to be poor. Um, like, you know, this d- didn't seem to be the kind of abject poverty that I experienced in New York. Um, like obviously it was not, uh, you know, it was not affluent and you don't, you don't see that kind of affluence, but, um, but at the same time, like, uh, you know, the, the streets were very safe and, um, and people seemed fed and, and clothed and housed. Um, and you know, and the, the, that atmosphere seemed quite friendly. The other thing I noticed is that like, you know, there was, didn't seem to be much like anti-Americanism among the people I encountered. Um, so it was like a very positive, you know, initial impression. And it was like over the course of the time that I was there was I start to meet people and, and talk to them and they would open up to me that I was exposed, you know, in, in a small amount to, to what I regard as the dark side, which is that people really resented their lack of freedom. Um, they were encouraged to spy on their neighbors. Um, they were not permitted to travel like within regions, um, even within, you know, a, a small island country. And, uh, and uh, you know, they, they're oftentimes they're sort of like, you know, their, their politics or their, their views on, on something like, for example, like war in Angola might really completely impact and, and transform and or to decimate their careers that their educations were very the educate the quality of education was probably pretty good for a latin american standard but highly ideological and there was a lot of resentment about this um 
there was also this idea that like, uh, because I noticed that people weren't anti-American when I told them where I was from and so on. Um, when I investigate a little further, what I heard from them is that like, we have trading relations with every other country in the world. Like our situation this is really hard to blame it on America alone. And so it, it was just very interesting to sort of hear that. And it was quite disturbing. I mean, I think I was like, at the time I was quite young. I was going to Cuba um, because, you know, it was a romantic sort of destination, right? Um, and it was like, for me, and the sort of exposure to that kind of police state, what it's like to live in one. Um, I think I came away with a, a, much, a much more jaundiced view of, of uh, you know, socialist dictatorships. Anyway, um, I would love to get your thoughts when you get back on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really obviously excited to go there. I, I think um, I'm trying to be realistic about like how much I'll be able to learn in nine days as a someone who speaks barely any Spanish. And, you know, we will be in touristy places. We're going to yeah. be in Havana for a chunk of it. But I'm yeah, to the extent I can I can politely ask Cubans about that. I'm very interested in it. I, I, I'm just I've been trying to bone up on some of the history of it. And it's just like. Uh, level of just like catastrophe and tragedy concentrated on a small island, often directly because of us, though not always, is just yeah. um, it's brutal and and it just it sort of sucks that we have this place ninety miles off the coast, coast where there's still such a cool relationship. But um, yeah, uh, I, I appreciate the thoughts, and I'm, I'm very looking forward to touching down there and seeing what it's like. Great, thanks, Jesse. Thanks, man. All right, last two calls, Kennedy. What's up? Hey, Jesse, can you hear me? I can. Hey, what's up, man? Um, just wanted to get your thoughts on something that I've been uh, thinking about recently. So um, uh, I'm black. I was born in Zimbabwe and I moved to the UK where I live now in 2009. I think this will be sort of like important background to my question. So the sentiment of uh, race, as it is uh, currently understood, saying in the US or even here in the UK as totally a, a social construct, right? Thus, like a sentiment that I, I, I want to believe in, I think, I think I agree with, but also at the same time, it doesn't take sort of like expert Google, uh, Google Scholar search to find sort of like dozens of studies showing like correlates between, uh, genetic diversity with, uh, in populations and, like, say, uh, medical conditions or even other studies uh, talking about how self-identified race is what you would tick in, say, like a census paper and also, like, um, uh, the genetic diversity that they've found since they've mapped the human genome. It, it, it's not, the correlation is not zero. It actually maps on there reasonably well. So yeah. how how... How how do I put that work in context with the sentiment of race being socially constructed? Is it all because it, it, it can't all just be like pseudoscience, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm talking of like papers that are as recent as two years ago yeah. and stuff like that. It doesn't, it doesn't, and it's not in like fringe journals. You know, this is stuff that's in like epidemiology journals for like nutrition stuff, like in biomedical sciences. Yeah. So I'm just gonna understand what, how, how is that just like a failure of language that because we shorten the language and say it's socially constructed, but then there's a longer way to say what we mean by socially constructed is that the way we understand it now is more to do with how people have been treated in the past. But then 
the correlation is not zero. It's not one, but then it's also not zero, not right? Zero. It, it, yeah, it actually maps on like some papers. I saw one that was from like 2005 saying that 99%. And then other people, when they discuss it, they say reasonably well. Other people will say, you know, there was one talking about how when they do epigenetics, maybe they shouldn't control for just self, self-identified self race yeah. differently from 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 genetic stuff because sometimes it, it actually the relationship is so close so i'm just like okay so when i go online and i go on twitter and I, and I see this i'm like okay i think i agree with this but then at the same time it doesn't i go on google scholar and i find all this work and i'm like obviously people that are more likely to favor racist yeah. sort of ideology they're, they're, they're more expert at this work and they're going to find it easy so i'm just trying to understand how do we put this in context how should i is there something that i'm missing yeah or um, how does it um, um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I would. So, I mean, I should say this is not an area of major expertise for me. If you look up, there's a woman named Catherine Page Harden who we interviewed on on the other podcast, who I think is good at this stuff. I think. Yeah, I um, read her book. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I've got her book. Yeah, yeah, I've got her book, and yeah. I think she makes the point about um, when you actually look at the variation within populations, it's more than between. And then I think she also makes a point about. It might map on reasonably well, but when you actually zoom in, then you start to see that it's a lot more fuzzy than what it looks like from like a bird's eye view. I think, I think if I remember her book correctly, that's the point that she makes. And also Adam Rutherford in his book, uh, Arguing with the Racist, I think makes sort of similar, similar arguments. But then it is sometimes when you don't know, you think when people say socially constructed, you think there's literally zero overlay but then that's not true as well so i'm just you know (laughs) yeah so i i think what you're pointing to here is that like socially constructed is often not a very useful term and okay um i i think that the intelligent version of race is socially constructed would say and and look you have to a lot of these scholars are american and a lot of this work comes we're like just out of the age of legal racial segregation so you can understand why people are trying to downplay some of this. I I think basically race is socially constructed in the sense that it's ludicrous to say that you being from Zimbabwe share a racial essence with everyone else from Africa, which I think is a much more, I believe Africa is much more genetically diverse than like any of the places people have gone to since then. So yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what the data seems to say because of people, you know, the out of Africa event. So obviously people from there have more diversity than places that have been populated more recently. Yeah. In terms of, and, um, and, yeah. and until fairly recently, there were scientists who were like, yep, all those Africans, they, they share some common heritage. And we now know things are much more complicated than that. We also know that, for example, I'm an, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. We uh-huh. have certain, um, I think Tay-Sachs is a disease we're more likely to get because there is a genetic component to being an Ashkenazi Jew. And similarly, there are genetic components to other ethnic groups. But, you know, this is where race and ethnicity get fuzzy. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I can be racially white, but I'm Ashkenazi Jewish. So even if I'm, a, you know, it's like... Um, it gets complicated, yeah. <laughs> it gets incredibly complicated. So so I think you're right to be skeptical of the idea that there is no that there's no sense in which race maps onto like real physical stuff because because even just the 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 genetics of skin color have to get passed that's down. what i'm saying yeah pigmentation yeah. right that's 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 genetic so i'm like it, it, it can't be zero so it's like maybe i'm missing what people actually mean when they say that is because i want to believe in it you know i want to be a good liberal person and be like listen let's let's move away from this but at the same time 
it just doesn't you don't have to look very far to I think I think it it it's, it's if you're working. trying to fight racism I think it's self-defeating to pretend that ah, right, right, there's right. no biological component to race when there is I think where they're correct is like the the old race science studies about like intelligence and stuff I think that stuff has been not only has it been thoroughly debunked but there's been this weird flip where now you know 60 years ago it was Black people are inferior. Now many of the most successful recent immigrant groups to the U.S. are black. So I, I'm glad to see that stuff get demolished. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't think we need to go in the other direction and pretend that there's nothing biological there's nothing to race. Because yeah. then also, how would, how would sort of like Ancestry.com and 23andMe work? I mean, I, I know there have been sort of questions about how valid those results are, but if it was totally zero then they, they wouldn't really be able to um do like the analysis that they do right it, it would just be it wouldn't work i, mean, I think people like, probably would would answer different. that by like this slippery language where they flip between race and genetics which do overlap but... oh, okay they'll, they'll, so they'll, they'll prefer to like a recent sort of uh uh population ancestry instead of just race as is understood um, yeah, I think I think basically you're right, and they don't actually have any good arguments. And a lot of these ideas are spread by people who just haven't thought it through. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no problem. Now, just just uh, uh, thanks for the question. Just yeah, something I've been thinking about, and just trying to read around and thinking that well, it's a, it's a bit yeah, no, no, you know, and it, it, it can be it can be fuzzy. The people that really want to jump on this and use it for nefarious reasons, it's very easy for them to be like, yeah, but, and then they can start sending you references to like papers. Then you're like, ah, wait, (laughs) yeah, you know, (laughs) it's a whole rabbit hole. I mean, that's part of the reason I've never dived fully into it, but, um, yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're right to be suspicious of the, the lefty version that race is, um, completely fake. But, um, anyway, I, that, that was a really good question. It makes me want to read more about it. So I appreciate the call. No problem. That's right, Jesse. Have a good one. You too, Kenny. Jenny, what is up? Hey, Jesse. I uh, I read an article at The Sun yesterday morning talking about Russia releasing their 7,000 mile per hour hypersonic nuke that could hit London in five minutes. So my my mid-afternoon vibe is uh, nuclear war survival skills. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's something I've been thinking about my whole life. I grew up in a prepper family in the 60s and 70s, and my parents were always into food storage and gardening and just kind of you know, thinking logically about what the realities were on the ground and what do we need to be prepared for. They had lived through the 60s riots in Detroit. And so we're always kind of prepper minded the whole time I was growing up. And then I really took this to heart because when I was 21, I had a a nervous breakdown. And in that kind of altered state of mind, I thought we were living through a nuclear war. I literally. Oh, God, I can't. I hallucinated nuclear bombs going off in this altered state. And so the way that I healed working with my therapist was to logically kind of work through the steps of what I would do if this actually happened. And so for the last 30 or so years, I've really spent a lot of time thinking about it, researching. And so I just wondered what your thoughts on our, you know, do you think we could literally have some sort of nuclear warfare? Do you think we're past that? Do you spend any time thinking about it? Does anybody else? I mean, I think I'm weird, but you know, does anybody else think about it? I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I think it's very unlikely, and I think it's far less likely than it was at the peak of the Cold War. I also, I don't have anywhere near the expertise um, to really evaluate this. What what seems to be going on on Twitter is people don't want us to ramp up our involvement uh, or NATO's involvement, so they 
claim that instituting a no-fly zone that it would be a very short hop from there to nuclear war. I, I don't I don't quite understand how that could be the case if it isn't if doing what we've already done isn't a short hop to nuclear war. I think they're just making that argument because they don't they don't want the no-fly zone and the direct military engagement. So who am I to say? But I, I my general stance is uh, I worry about a lot of stuff, but this is not something I worry about in part because. Uh, like there's so, I mean, I, I have sort of a messed up brain myself and I'll worry about stuff I have no control over, but this is the ultimate no control over. Like, um, I don't, I don't think it's likely at all. Personally, I'm not an expert, but that's my. Well, I appreciate that. And if I could, I would just love to toss out to your listeners that people usually have two reactions to this. One is they get kind of laconic and they can't think clearly and they're disabled. They're, they're literally terrorized. And the other is they get, um, you know, fight or flight kicks in and they, they just want to flee. And the way to work through those feelings is to just acknowledge that that's what's happening to you and then come at it logically. Okay, what can I do to mitigate if a bomb went off anywhere in the world? I think it would impact the whole of humanity. And so what would I do if I knew there was fallout, if I knew there might be a response? And it, it, it's just what I've learned over the years that helped me. And, and this is, again, a theme that often shows up in people who have nervous breakdowns. It's a terror that is the ultimate terror. And so if you can just kind of think through it logically, that, that really has been the ticket for me kind of overcoming my terror. But I must admit, the last few weeks, I've had just kind of like old feelings cropping up of like, okay, could this really happen? Is this really here? And so it's, it's tricky. Uh, I appreciate the call. And I can totally understand why... Um... Yeah, why why you might be worried about this is a very scary time, but I you know, personally do not think nuclear war is likely. And this is one of those predictions where if you're wrong, no one will be around to call you out for being wrong. So it's like a convenient position to make, uh, prediction to make. But um, thank you for the call, Jenny. Thank you. All right, guys, that is uh, got through the whole queue. I appreciate you all tuning in as always. Uh, always open to your suggestions for guests and topics. Like I've mentioned previously in April when I'm back in the States and don't have such a crazy schedule. I'm going to um, get more guests on here because a couple of the episodes with guests I think were, were, were solid, and I'd like to do more stuff like that. As always, I would just ask you to spread the word if you enjoy what I'm doing here. The more people find out about it, the better for me, for us. Um, yeah, and email me any uh, Cuba recommendations or do- downloadable documentaries in particular between now and uh, God, I guess. I think I have to wake up like 14 hours from now to get to lovely Newark airport on time. Uh, I can't complain. It'll be a great trip. Thank you guys all for listening. Farewell.